Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, I'm so glad to be back in the uh, the book of John. If you don't know me, not, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the, I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, I, we stopped John way back like Thanksgiving time. And for you guys who like are new or haven't been, you know, a part of us or whatever, or for those of you who have been here forever, that seems like a real long time ago, Thanksgiving. Like we're looking at, at like Valentine's Day this week and to say, hey, we we left off back in Thanksgiving. That's a really, really long time ago. Um, and so I'm going to preach through all six chapters. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, uh, last week, Jeff kind of launched us back into, into the book of John. He talked about Jesus walking on water. Um, and that was like 11 verses. Okay, And so in order to get us caught up and get all the way through the book of John by Easter, we're going to be uh, biting off 49 verses today, okay? So uh, put, put your, uh, your driving gloves on. I don't even know if that's a thing, but we're, <laughs> we're going in John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, whether digital or otherwise, uh, go ahead and pull that out. Flip to John chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 22. But before we get there, I kind of want to set the table a little bit for the text that we get an opportunity to dig into. You know, for me, when I came to follow Jesus, um, you know, when I was eight years old, I made a profession of faith in my bedroom. I was praying with my mom and I was like, I want to invite Jesus in my heart. And I did that. And um, I didn't like at the time I, I, I didn't dig into like a whole bunch of theological books. Like I hadn't read the Bible from cover to cover, regardless of how many candies I was going to get at Sunday school. If I did, like I didn't do any of those things. I didn't go study hermeneutics and apologetics and take an Old Testament survey and a New Testament survey and really dig in to the Romans road and the book of, I didn't do any of that stuff because I was eight. And so as an eight-year-old, I felt like, hey, this is true. There is truth in this. And I recognize that, that, that there is a real presence here, a relationship between God and I. And I want to make that, like, I want to be a part of that. Everybody else in my, in my bubble was a part of that. So I want to be a part of that too. And then, you know, I got older and I decided that I was actually really going to uh, follow Jesus, not just my parents' faith or anything like that, but I got older and I said, okay, what, what does this actually look like? And so then I really started reading my Bible, trying to extract from it uh, a truth, um, trying to extract from it practical application for things in my life, that sort of thing. Um, and then I, I came to the, the, the realization again that this, not only is this true, but this also works. This is true. And on top of that, this entire thing works. But, but I don't regularly ask myself the question, why do I follow Jesus? And I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that question as well. That question, why do we follow Jesus? And that should be your first point. Why do we follow Jesus? What's the point of it? Now, I don't know, for you, maybe, uh, maybe you were like me and your parents, uh, to, to quote Dave Fox, you had a drug problem when you were younger, or your parents drug you to church every single Sunday. <laughs> right? I don't know if that was you. I mean, that was me. I got drugged to church every single Sunday. Or maybe for you, you came to faith later on in life. You, there was some sort of uh, big catalytic event that happened. Maybe you had a friend or a family member get incredibly ill or sick or somebody passed away. And that's the reason you decided to come to church for the first time. 
Or maybe for you, it was simply somebody was faithful to God and the call that he has on our lives to share his word. And they simply said, hey, I'd love for you to join me in church. And then lo and behold, you showed up. I don't know why it is that you follow Jesus in the first place. But today we get an opportunity to to look at Jesus and the people who were following him at the time. And we get to see Jesus actually call them onto the carpet for their motivation for following him. And so as we get an opportunity to dig into that, I want you to think back to what your motivation was and is for following Jesus in the first place as as we kind of walk through this. But I can tell you this question isn't the first time that this question should have been wrestled with. If you are a believer, if you're somebody who has continued to take your faith seriously, you should regularly be going back to this question. Why is it that I follow Jesus? And the question actually, the answer actually should be a relatively simple one, but we're gonna see if we can deduce what that is. So John 6, 22 to 71, it's a massive chunk of scripture and, and it's a really important chunk of scripture. So I want you to know uh, from, from the get-go, we are not going to read through every single one of these verses. Half of you are upset, half of you are relieved, that's okay. We're not gonna read through every single one of these verses. We're gonna walk through, we're gonna pull out the points that I feel are important to our message today, but I would encourage you to go back and make sure you read that entire section of scripture. We're gonna take out a chunk that uh, talks about Jesus being our heavenly father. Specifically, there's 10 verses that we're just, we're we're not gonna be able to discuss today because of time, but go back through it because the the entire thing is, is is incredible. So, We're going to pick up here where Pastor Jeff left off and recognize the story just before this was Jesus walking on water. Okay, this isn't a small miracle by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know if you guys caught it last week, but Jeff mentioned real briefly that John actually only records seven miracles in his entire gospel account, walking on water being one of them. And then right before that, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people. Okay, so that was my last message all the way back in Thanksgiving time, in Thanksgiving time, because that's the way you say that. That was my last message of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. And then Jeff jumped to Jesus walking on water right after that. And this story takes place right after Jesus walks on water. So in verses 22 uh, to 24, there are people who are coming up. They're looking for Jesus and his disciples. They thought they were on the other side of the lake. They thought that because they didn't know that they had sailed to the other side while Jesus walked to the other side um, of the lake. They didn't recognize that. So they're looking for him. And in verse 25, they find him and they ask him when it was that he showed up. They're like, hey, when, when did you get here? And Jesus has a very typical Jesus response where he answers a question or he answers their question with an answer that cuts at the heart of what they are really asking. So they ask one question and then Jesus is like, well, I'm going to give you the answer of what you're really asking me, not what you are actually asking me. So he says in John 6, 26 to 27, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, feeding the 5,000, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. For on him, God, the father has placed his seal of approval. 
So he's telling them here, hey, hey, look, the only reason you're looking for me is because you're hungry. Let's be real. It's breakfast time. Okay, I had just fed all of you. And so because I had just fed all of you and now your, are, your, your, your tummies are rumbling a little bit again, that you want me to feed you again. The people wanted to find Jesus so he would fill, fill their bellies. That's really what he is doing here. And that should be your next slide. People wanted to find Jesus so he'd fill their bellies. But in verses 26 and 27, uh, it's pointing to their humanness. And really, Jesus is reminding them that they are, there are things that are way more important here than your breakfast. Now, some of us just took offense to that because there's no, nothing more important than breakfast time. Yeah, I got an amen. It's the one amen we can get in the Baptist church. Breakfast! But there are things that are way more important here than their breakfast. I mean, have you ever even considered why you should be following me, Jesus asked, rather than why you are actually following me? And that's what Jesus is saying here. Hey, look, I know that the only reason you're following me right now is because you're looking for your meal ticket this morning. It has nothing to do with the signs and wonders. It has nothing to do with who I actually am. It has everything to do with you filling your bellies. And so to their credit, they, they ask Jesus this, what must we do to do the works of God that, that, that God requires? What do we have to do then? Fine, fine, you're right. I was looking for a meal and you are someone greater. God has put your seal, his stamp of approval on you. So what is it that I have to do to do the works of God? They get it, at least we think they do, they get it. They recognize that this guy is good for much more than a free meal. And they wanna do what works, they, 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 need, they need to do, they wanna understand what it is they need to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus' response was the same then that it is today in John 6, 29, where it says, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Like, hey, tell, all right, fine, tell us what we have to do then. Tell, you tell me what we have to do in order, in order for us to, to have approval for eternity. You tell us what the work he says that we have to do. And he's just like, hey, it's, it's simple. Believe in the one that he sent. Believe in the one that he has sent. Simply believe in the one who was sent from God. Believe in me is all you need to do. And this was going to prove difficult. Because in order for them to believe, they asked Jesus for a sign to make, them, to, to make them believe that he is indeed God's son. And I don't even necessarily blame them. Like if you had somebody who came up and like fed you, like, 5, 000, like fed 5,000 people out of a couple loaves and a couple fish and that sort of thing. And, and the next morning you see him again, like, what are you gonna do? You're like, man, I want a free breakfast. I hope he can, you know, double down on some Panera, maybe some bacon, bacon and eggs or something like that today instead of fish and bread. Like, I don't even necessarily blame them here because I don't think they recognized who it was they were in the presence of. But this is also a common theme for Jews, that they consistently wanted to ask for signs and wonders in order for proof of who it was that they should believe. Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 24. Paul says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Look, he's saying, look, look, every, like we get it. The gospel is countercultural regardless of who you are. If you're Jewish, you want to see more signs. If you're Greek, you want to see more wisdom. If you're whatever, you want to see whatever your natural bent is to believing in God. It's always Jesus and something else. So the Jewish people were known for demanding signs in order to believe what God says is true. They even used what God did for their ancestors in order to try and trap him into doing more signs. It's crazy. They talk about how God used to send manna from heaven every single day in order to give sustenance to the ancestors. So they reasoned, if you are more than Moses, do more than Moses. That's where they're going with this entire thing. They must have felt that the, the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't enough. It didn't compare to Moses when, when the, the Hebrew people were wandering out in the desert and Jesus like, or God is like, hey, look, I'm gonna take care of you. Every single day, I'm gonna send bread from heaven for you. And you're gonna have your fill, you're gonna eat. Don't try to get extra bread because it's gonna spoil, but you're gonna have your fill for the day. You know what, I, you're in the desert, but regardless of that, you're gonna have water for the day. I am going to take care of you. And God did that for 40 years. And so now these people are thinking back to that. And they're like, hey, look, well, if you're God, God fed our people for 40 years. You only fed us for a meal. Sounds like you owe us like 39.999 years. And that's what they're trying to trap him with here. Then in verse 32, Jesus reframes this entire narrative for him, reframes the entire thing, the entire understanding of Moses, the entire understanding of who Jesus is, and the entire understanding of the miracle that had already been performed of feeding the 5,000. When he says in verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father. Okay, he switches that there, right? They talk about this idea that, hey, when they were with Moses, Moses got his bread from heaven. What are you going to give us? He says, no, 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 no. It wasn't Moses. This is God. This is my father, the same one who put the seal of approval on me. That's what he's communicating to him here. But it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. I'm like, all right, cool. You say, you say that you are the bread, like, like there is bread from heaven that we need to eat. Always then give us this bread. And I think there is still a literal mindset going on in their minds right now. Like, all right, all right, fine. Like whatever, it's not Moses, it's God, whatever. Just give us this bread from heaven. We always want this bread from heaven. So Jesus leads then what, what they need to do in order to inherit eternal life, right? They agree and then he gives an encouragement and a warning as he begins speaking about the first of what are called the I am statements in the book of John, of which, like I said, there are seven I am statements in the same way there are seven miracles recorded in the gospel of John, which it should be noted that the biblical number of completion and perfection is the number seven. So I, and personally, I love Jesus's I am statements in the book of John. Like when, like when someone walks up to me, I walk up to somebody and I'm talking about myself 
right? And I'm getting to know them, not like in an arrogant way, like, hey, let me tell you how great I am. But I'm just, we're just having a conversation, right? And I say, hey, look, yep, I, I am a dad of five boys. And that always gets a good shock, right? I am a dad. Okay, that, tell, that, that reveals something very deep about who I believe that I am. There's something very, it has everything to do with my identity or I am Sarah's husband. Okay, there's something very deeply ingrained in my life that is part of my identity. I am a pastor. That is something very deeply ingrained in something that I believe. I am a Christian, top of the heap, very deeply ingrained into my identity and who I am. So as we read these seven different I am statements, which we have actually each of them on the screen, all of these uh, should point to Jesus's identity. The first one is, I am the bread of life. And that's what we're going to be talking about, continuing to talk about today, that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He goes on, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am divine. Those are all of them. And these things reveal a very deep understanding about who Jesus is. They are part of his identity. And when, so when Jesus goes and he says, look, I am the bread of life, this is important. And he says that in verse 35, it says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all of those he have given me, but raise them up in the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son, let me say this again, verse 40. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up in the last day. Everyone, that was Jesus's purpose. So when he talks about the idea of being the bread of life, he's saying, look, I'm the spiritual sustenance that you need. I am the spiritual sustenance that you need. Jesus is man's necessary food. In Western culture, right, bread is oftentimes optional. Not for some of you. Some of you are like, bread is never optional. But bread oftentimes is optional. And a lot of times, I mean, even today, right? A lot of times it should be avoided depending on, you know, if you got different tummy issues and that sort of thing. Like some people just can't simply have bread. Back then, if you didn't have bread, you're gonna die. Like this was their main source of food. Like it's bread and fish. You ever wonder why nobody complained about the meal that Jesus prepared when he fed the 5,000? Like bread and fish. That was normal, that was normative. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, look, I am the sustenance that you need. This isn't like an optional bread thing here. Like, oh yeah, I'm the dinner roll on the side of the plate that maybe I'll take a couple bites of. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am exactly what you need. He says, he who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Which, which we hear that as modern day Christians and we recognize then what Jesus is kind of alluding to. He is the bread of life. 
We hear that and we know that he's starting to allude to eternal things, not to temporal things. Recognize he's talking about something much bigger than a meal on a morning. Jesus is talking about his sacrifice on the cross. And that at some point, all of us will need to partake in that in some way. But they don't get it. They still don't get it. As a matter of fact, they start grumbling for 10 verses because Jesus talks about how he's from heaven. And they're like, how can this guy be from heaven? Isn't Mary and Joseph his parents? Like we know his parents. There's no way that this dude actually came from heaven. So there's 10 verses of grumbling there. And then we pick up back again in 51. And Jesus at this point, he, I feel like he's like almost like, fine. You want something to grumble about? You want a hard teaching? I'll give you a hard teaching. If you can't understand I am the bread of life and I'm worth more than a breakfast, here we go. Let's go. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Hard teaching. This bread is my flesh, which, will I, which I will give for the life of the world. At that point, they all freak out. And rightfully so. Like, fine, you want to keep taking this literally? This bread's my flesh. Eat up. Saying this guy wants us to eat his flesh? Like they, like they are freaking out about this. And then he goes back for more. Almost as to say, no, 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 no. Not, not just my flesh. Verse 53, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Look, that is a hard teaching. That's a difficult, if somebody just fed you, right? And they're like, I'm the son of God. And in order to inherit eternal life, and you're still thinking like, literally, like, hey, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm out. That's a hard teaching. But he says, unless you do this, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. That's hard. That's real hard. Actually, the greatest split to ever happen in the Christian faith, part of it was based around this text from Catholicism and Protestantism, right? Where, where and, and I'm not gonna, I said I wasn't gonna get into this whole thing with the pastors earlier, but, but there's a massive split because of this text, because it is a hard teaching. And if you wanna know more about it, I'm happy to talk to you about it later. They have a guy here who has showed them some miraculous things. And now all of a sudden he's telling them that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood because verse 57 and 58, just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He brings it back to their original argument of saying, Hey, look, Moses fed us for 40 years. And then Jesus brings it back. He said, look, you wanted a full belly. You want a full belly? Like if that's really what you're after, your ancestors had a full belly for 40 years as they wandered in the desert. And guess where they are? Dead. I'm offering you more. I'm offering you more than this. I'm offering you more than breakfast. I am offering you eternal life. I am the bread of life. If you do what I tell you by believing in me, you will live forever. I mean, there's a tone here that is just saying, like, you think Moses is greater than me? 
I created Moses. I breathed life into that guy's lungs. And you think that guy can hold a candle to me? The people that he was walking with, that God provided manna for and bread for every day, they're gone. But I will live forever. But they couldn't get beyond the literal in this. They couldn't get beyond their rumbling tummies in this. So this incredibly difficult teaching, even in verse 60, it says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. And the tone here almost seems like Jesus is kind of sad. Jesus is frustrated. Like, guys, come on. What do I need to do in order for you to get it? This is about more than magic tricks. This is about more than signs. This is about God becoming a human in order to save all of mankind forever. And you're hung up on more signs. And it's easy for, for us for me, to sit here and just criticize these people. Like we know the end of the story. We know that Christ is substantive. We know and understand that he is the bread of life, that without him there is spiritual death. We recognize that. This is before the upper room. And the upper room is when Jesus institutes the idea of communion. And so we, like, like these people, these believers have no context of this. We do it every month. Like we understand, like reading this story, we get this when Jesus is talking about, hey, eat my flesh and drink my blood. We recognize this. We know and understand that he is indeed the bread of life. But we as Western Christians have a ton of knowledge regarding who Christ is stored up here. As a matter of fact, we, we have access to more information regarding who Christ is today in your pocket than anybody has in the history of the entire world. We get like, we understand that. And still we don't know why it is that we follow him. And we said like, we still wrestle with that question. Some of you are still being bugged by it. Why do I follow Jesus? What is the point of following Jesus? The Jews at least know why it was they were, why it was they were supposed to follow him. They were following him because they were physically hungry, even though they needed spiritual nourishment. Like, hey, look, we're gonna follow that guy. He fed us yesterday. At least they understood. At least they knew what it was that they were trying to do. And I don't know if I can, if you can even answer the question I posed earlier about why it is that you follow Jesus. I can tell you though, that the reason that we should follow Jesus is because Jesus is literally the only thing we need. Jesus is literally the only thing that we need. And not in the cheesy, like classic Christian sort of way of I'm relying on Jesus as I get through this day, but you only say it to your Christian friends. You don't say that to anybody else because you don't want anybody else to think you're a weirdo. No, yeah, I'm relying on God. He's, he's blessing me. And then your language changes as soon as you have a conversation with somebody that you're not sure about their faith. It's in the sense of recognizing that we have the spirit of the living God inside of us waiting for us to be quiet enough to hear him speaking and waiting for us to be quiet enough to hear him moving. 
to hear his promptings for our life, for him to remind us that even though our flesh is weak, our spirit is willing, that all we need for contentment in this life is Jesus. All we need for nourishment in our lives is Jesus. The answer isn't Jesus and. The answer is simply Jesus. That's the answer. The Jews wanted Jesus and miracles. The Greeks wanted Jesus and wisdom. The West wants Jesus and prosperity. We want Jesus and all of these other things for contentment. We want Jesus and the new car. We want Jesus and the best schools. We want Jesus and the comfortable lifestyle. We want Jesus as long as that and can fit inside whatever your personal narrative is. And I'm not above it. I'm with you. I was raised in the same culture that all of you were raised in. So often we seek for Jesus and I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as I don't have to go anywhere. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And this isn't even new. People have been trying to add to the, to, to the story of the gospel forever, forever. You need to accept Jesus as your savior and get baptized in order to go to heaven. And I just shocked some of you that I said that right now. There are so many Christians who believe that in order for us to get to heaven, we have to place our faith in Christ and be baptized. You know, the Bible actually explicitly says that's not true. If you open up your Bible, Romans 10, 9, you don't have to, but Romans 10, 9, where it tells us, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Man, isn't that so cool when it talks about baptism in that? It's my favorite part of that verse. But people have been trying to add to Jesus forever. And even, even in the early church, it's Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and the law. Like they didn't even make it 10 years without, without like the two biggest guys in the church getting in a fight about this. Like both of them were alive when Jesus was alive. Peter and Paul. And Paul's like, hey, we don't need to add anything to Jesus. And Peter's like, well, no, we do need to add something to Jesus. We need them to follow the law as well. It's not Jesus and, it's just Jesus, period. And as we, like, as we grow in our faith and as we become more holy and become more sanctified, as we do our best to honor God and walk with God and do all those things, will our actions reflect that? I hope so. Like, I hope that it is Jesus, period. And because of the fact that, that Jesus is the savior of my life, I'm gonna act differently. Like, that's how it works. It's Jesus, period. Or Jesus and speaking in tongues. Or Jesus and getting married. Or Jesus and having a family. Or Jesus and our rules and our regulations. And, or Jesus and not being too weird about it. Jesus and, Jesus and, like this is all of our motivation so often as we try to add to Jesus. And Jesus is like, look, what works do I have to, what works does God require of us to have eternal life? You just say, hey, just follow me. Like he says, me, me, believe in me. He's all we need 
He's all of our sustenance. All our eternity relies on Jesus and nothing. Relies on Jesus and nothing. And that's a hard teaching. But imagine what it would look like. if we as a church got after this idea of Jesus and nothing else. Jesus. Not Jesus and our free time. Not Jesus and our massive bank account. Not Jesus and the family that I've always personally wanted. Not Jesus and my dream job. Not any of those things, just simply Jesus and our lives looking differently because of what, what would it look like if it was simply Jesus and nothing? If our love and our recognition for who Jesus is spurred us into the love that he wanted us to have for other people, not being compelled by guilt, not being compelled by rules, not being compelled by law, but being compelled by his love for us and a desire for others to see that love as well. And what would we look like as a church? Someone said, hey, tell me about your church. Like, well, let me, I just need to tell you about Jesus then. That's all I need to do. That our church would be known as the church who actually represents Christ, who actually represents Jesus, not as a church that talks about Jesus and then doesn't act like him for the rest of the week. If we weren't concerned about Jesus and being socially acceptable, but we were concerned about other people knowing Jesus enough to actually talk to them about it. If we're not concerned with anything but Jesus, then social acceptance, the idea of feeling awkward about talking to somebody else about him, the idea of bringing up Jesus's name at all, shouldn't be a hard teaching because we recognize that I believe in Jesus and nothing else. I believe in Jesus and what he brought to the table, which is salvation forever. And so if it indeed, if you believe that and you are compelled by that, the response to that should be to make sure everybody else in your oikos knows. Here at our church, we believe in, in the understanding of, of oikos. Oikos is a Greek word that means household. So essentially it's saying people in our oikos are people who God has both supernaturally and strategically placed in your life to impact for the kingdom of God. So you have a responsibility to those people. And if you say, hey, look, Jesus and nothing, great. Get after it. Because there are people who don't believe that in your life. There are people who don't believe that in your family. There are people who don't believe that in your workplace. There are people who don't believe that where you buy your coffee in the morning. There are people who don't believe that. And it's our responsibility as Christians who do say, hey, this is indeed what I believe. It's our responsibility to share that good news. And again, that's a hard teaching. And I'm still learning it. We're all still learning it. We're all doing our best to be compelled by the love that God has for us, that Christ has for us in order to share that love with somebody else. So I'm not standing up here saying I'm perfect or I'm great at it or anything like that. But I am saying it is my responsibility in the same way that it's your responsibility. It's not my responsibility because I'm Pastor Peter. It's my responsibility because I'm a Christian and I recognize that it's Jesus and nothing. It's Jesus. So let's pray. God, thank you for hard teachings. That's a hard one. 
Even for those believers at the time, Father, that's a hard one for them who so often just took things literally and wanted to see more and wanted to see more. And Father, I pray that their interaction with you, even, man, I hope they're with you in eternity because of that interaction. But God, as we, as we take this passage and we apply it to our lives and we look at, at what truth we should be able to pull from that, recognizing that it's Jesus who is the bread of life, that your son is the bread of life, your son is all we need, your son is the sustenance, period. God, I pray that we would be compelled to act, that we would love each, love each other, that we would love people outside the church, people outside of a relationship with you in a manner that would draw them in, in a manner that would represent you in a matter of authenticity, in a manner of allowing us to check our pride and check our egos and check our awkwardness at the door and saying, you know what? This is far more important than anything else in my life. So I'm gonna be compelled to share. Lord, I pray that would be true of the people in this church, that we would be compelled to share with those people who are in our oikos, those eight to 15 people who are in our household, under our spiritual care. I pray you would spur us forward And God, for those here who even heard a hard teaching who haven't yet placed their faith in Christ and recognize that Jesus is indeed the bread of life. He is the sustenance that we need. That he's the only thing that matters. That regardless of the turmoil, regardless of the the hard time that you may be walking through, regardless of the sickness or the death or, or whatever it may be, divorce that you're walking through, God, God wants you. And God sent his son for you. He sent his son to bleed and die on a cross for you. And so with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, we, we end every service with the ABCs. If that's you, if you recognize like, you know what, I've just been, been wandering and I need, G, I need the bread of life then just pray along with me. Say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, that I mess up. I got stuff that's going on in my life. I got hard stuff that's going on in my life. And I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. But Father, I also believe that you sent your son to die on the cross on my behalf. That I wouldn't have to wallow in that sin forever, that you've saved me from that and that see I would choose to follow him every single day. And part of following him, a big part of following him is proclaiming his name. So Father, not even for the people who just came into faith right now, but for all of us that we would choose to follow him and recognize that following him is far more than learning about him. God, that following your son is proclaiming his name, his action. It's not just that we believe properly, but it's also that we act properly. And you have called us to proclaim your name even to the ends of the earth. So Father, embolden us. Father, bring your spirit here and embolden us to share your word. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen.